Hello, and welcome to the launch episode of the Court Sounds Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McInnes, sports reporter at the Honolulu Star Advertiser, and thanks for stumbling upon my little experiment. Uh, I set this up as an outlet for hoops in Hawaii, be it University of Hawaii basketball, a take on what's going on or not going on in the NBA, and maybe occasionally talk some other things like esports, other UH sports, or even the occasional sci-fi or fantasy sojourn, a couple other interests of mine. I've set this up as uh, something for my own sanity, to actually converse with other humans on a semi-regular basis, you know. Uh, I'm not actively sports reporting right now, so it's allowing me just to cling to a little bit of that. To be clear, this podcast isn't directly affiliated with the newspaper. It's a side project I've decided to undertake, as I'm sure many of you out there have done during these times of quarantine. So, my first guest, Kanoa Leahy, I'm sure he's no stranger to you. He's the Spectrum Sports play-by-play voice for many of the televised UH sports, including men's and women's basketball, volleyball, and baseball. I talked to him about the start of the Last Dance Jordan documentary, uh, his sportscaster roots, and some of his favorite UH hoops games to call so far, among other things. He's just launched a podcast of his own, uh, Let's Talk Sports, from Maui, along with another good friend of mine, Jordan Helley. It's off to a great start, and it's something this podcast can only aspire to be at this point. But we'll do our best here once or twice a week and try to give you a little something to listen to during these tough times. So without further ado, uh, here's our pilot episode of Court Sense. Hope you enjoy. Okay, the first guest in the history of the Court Sense podcast. I'm honored to have my good friend Kanoa Leahy here on the line on the, the Zoom live streaming that we are using for this pod. Kanoa, what's up, man? Welcome to the Court Sense podcast. Hey, thanks, Brian. This is quite the honor to be the very first and possibly last guest of Court Sense, depending on how bad this first episode is. This is this is incredible, man. I'll try not to mess it up for you, though. I'll do my best, but no guarantees. Uh, none for me as well. I'm fully expecting this thing to go into just absolute quarantine of the actual podcast after this initial uh, segment. So um, I appreciate you you making a little time here. Just I just wanted to talk to you first about what's uh, quarantine living been like over there on Maui uh, at the Kanoa Leahy residence for these last few months. Yeah, well, I have uh, my own motivation to possibly sabotage your podcast because during quarantine, I started my own podcast. And I got to be telling you something, the uh, marketplace is getting pretty saturated. So, you know, you're now just basically competition for me, almost direct competition because we're both in the sports realm. So uh, that's, that's my, that possibly will be my motivation here throughout this first podcast episode but uh, just be wary just be wary but you're in the controls here you can edit it the way you want to and leave this last threatening part out of the final cut if you want well i just want to let you know i'm encroaching so much on your podcast territory that i've actually set up a studio right outside your house i'm actually <laughs> recording in the garage actually as we speak so no oh, that's great uh, i could use the company it has been rough man quarantine life is you know for everybody it's it's very different uh, we have taken so many things for granted and it's in situations unprecedented like these where you really appreciate just the freedom of going to the beach and uh, the freedom of 
of driving to the supermarket and it not even being a thing. Um, or, you know, for me, uh, regularly flying back and forth in island, like I, <laughs> that used to be something that I paid no mind to, uh, had the pre-check going through TSA. It was easy peasy. Uh, but now, you know, who knows when that will uh, return back to normalcy. So yeah, it's, it's strange. I mean, just like everybody, quarantine life has uh, given me a chance to binge watch a lot of television, uh, get a lot of uh, to-dos done around the house. The garage has never been cleaner. I just purchased a, por a portable basketball hoop today and was spending some of the day putting that together uh, because I just watched the first two episodes the other day of The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls docuseries, and uh, put me in the mood to shoot some hoops. Can't do it. So I went out and uh, I, got a I ordered a, a portable basketball hoop. So there you go. Well, the Jordan documentary was definitely one thing I wanted to ask you about. And, uh, you know, I've heard on your podcast, Let's Talk Sports, you and Jordan Helley doing your first initial deconstruction of the opening weekend, first two of the 10-part series. I just want to get your quick uh, thoughts. You know, what did you make of that two hours of kind of a traditional sitting on the couch and watching television event that we don't really get right now much of? Yeah, I, I thought it was great. It, it gave us a chance. What was interesting about it was, and you saw the overwhelming response and anticipation on social media, right? I mean, people were counting down on Twitter, like one hour from episode one, the series premiere of The Last Dance. And so it felt like we were anticipating a huge sporting event, like a live sporting event. It was the same thing. It was like one hour till kickoff of the Super Bowl, guys, you know? It almost felt like that. And so I think just for that experience, that opportunity to like emotionally for a few moments feel like that same level of anticipation that you get before Conor McGregor or Floyd Mayweather or whoever it may be comes out to the ring or cage or before the teams run out onto the field or court. That's kind of what the buildup to the docuseries felt like. And then I thought the first two episodes were great. From what I'm gathering, some of the media members who have had advanced uh, opportunities to watch at least deeper into the series they're saying that the first two episodes are perhaps not necessarily the worst episodes but the episodes that are uh, ultimately going to be the least interesting because of the fact that it really just had to kind of set up the background story right and a lot of mm -hmm. the background story especially about Michael Jordan uh, we knew already so it just had to kind of set the stage and backtrack on some of those details uh, but I still appreciated just the highlight montages, uh, the fact that you had Michael Jordan just sitting there speaking so freely, uh, you know, holding his glass of whiskey with the big ice cube and uh, he had a cigar that was burning on the side that he'd clutch from time to time. And just the openness of that conversation seemingly was something that I found fascinating. And one of my favorite parts, actually the first thing I went back and watched over again was when they did the montage of MJ's game two playoff performance against the Celtics where he dropped 63 and they applied the highlights over the soundtrack of LL Cool J's I'm Bad and I was like I'm sold man this is one of the coolest documentaries I've ever seen just from that part it just it gave me chicken skin uh, and, I, and I really was riveted I, I think it, it was a great first couple of chapters and, and we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah I really appreciated how they they kind of set the stage you know, right from the jump of the documentary of the last dance, that 97, 98 season, which would be the last of the Bulls championship dynasty run and all the, the fraught relationships that 
uh, right from the, the just the outset of this documentary, this this vast undertaking. They lay it out how much of a challenge it's going to be for all the key players involved, from Michael to Scotty to to Phil to, to Rodman, Kerr, those guys, and you got Jerry Krause in the background, man, kind of Jerry pulling Krause. pulling the strings. Uh, so it was a riveting man, and um, you know I, I kind of knew all this as a some of it as a kid growing up. You know I wasn't as into following the NBA religiously like I am as an adult, but um, it, it, a lot of it rang true from what I remembered as a kid. And it was just a joy to go back and, and see all that just, you know, with these bright lights and everyone paying attention at the same time is, is pretty special. Yeah. Um, so there was a story that the director, you know, because you, even if you have 10 episodes that are an hour each limited commercials, which I think come out for ESPN to exactly 50 minutes of actual documentary time right film time for each episode and so you're saying you know you can't possibly humanly possibly bring in all of the things you want to bring in into the show and include everything so there were a couple of details that he left out of these first two episodes and one of the things he lamented as far as what he couldn't include was a story that i never heard about michael in high school i remember obviously infamously he was cut from his sophomore or mm-hmm. his sophomore year was cut from the varsity team uh, after tryouts and so he was kind of a late bloomer and not a lot of people were recruiting in that area. Uh, he was a relative unknown across the national recruiting scene. Uh, and then I guess his junior year, uh, his coach wanted to get him into this pretty high profile camp. Uh, and it included guys like Patrick Ewing and some of the other Len Bias, I think some of the other like top high school talents of that time. Uh, and his parents couldn't really afford it. It's like a multi-week camp. They could only afford one week so they put the scraps together they send Michael to this camp he turns out to be the MVP of the camp and it's with all of these fantastic players that I mentioned right um and so the the coaches and and all of the other coordinators of the camp wanted him to stay for the second week he said I can't afford it parents said I couldn't afford it so they said well what if we um basically let him stay for the second week but he works in the kitchen helping to serve the other campers like dinner and and lunch and all this stuff. And so basically Michael Jordan, who was the MVP of the first week of the camp was over there serving grilled cheese sandwiches and whatever else it might be to the other star high school recruits. Uh, And then he would go out and and kick their butt when it came to actual camp basketball time. So that was a pretty cool story that I wish they could have kept in. That's, that's pretty amazing. Um, Well, Matt, I, you know, we could talk about that all day and, I, I have a feeling we will down the line, you know, as this thing kind of unfolds. And as you said, maybe the, we hope the best is still to come over these next eight uh, episodes in four weeks. But uh, I do want to ask you, since you being the inaugural guest on the pod, I wanted to go in with you just a little bit more about UH basketball, since that's something that's pretty close to both of us in our professional right. and just interest personally. And I uh, wanted to ask you a couple things about yourself as well, just like where you're at in kind of your career, you know, as the main play-by-play voice for University of Hawaii sports and just how that's going. So this podcast is doing, <laughs> my goodness, if that's the subject matter. I'm prepared to go down with that. If, that, if that's uh, how this thing gets sunk, then, you know, it, it, it was an honorable undertaking from the jump. <laughs> Good try, yeah. <laughs> but so UH basketball, I mean, the, the season got, you know, just unceremoniously frozen in limbo for eternity based on what happened with the coronavirus and everything getting shut down on, on such, you know, just rapid fashion or on the outset of the big West tournament for both the men who didn't get to play a game and the women who won a uh, second round game to get to the semifinals and then had their season called off. So what was that like for you to see 
unfold after you know a whole basically a whole season was played and and the highest hopes are on the line at that point yeah it was a bummer uh, because hey look they were a team that was more sort of slated as having the outside chance of maybe making a run through the conference championship tournament right uh, they weren't one of the favorites but the big west conference as you and i are very well aware of it's one of those conferences that doesn't always make sense particularly come tournament time and so they had as much of a chance as anybody outside perhaps of uc irvine uh, of of making a run through that thing you know i think irvine was the heavy favorite for good reason they dominated through the regular season uh, and maybe you throw in uc santa barbara or somebody else in there that maybe would have been among the favorites and, and uh wouldn't necessarily be in that top three or four conversation uh, depending on who you talk to but again it's the big west conference tournament and, and funny funky things tend to happen in those three days in anaheim and so i think what was a bummer was they just didn't have a chance to finish on their own terms if they would have been bounced in the first round so be it they didn't have a chance to even see if they could do that and i think that's the regret uh, and I feel, obviously, as, as anyone does for any of the seniors of, of every program that hadn't already wrapped up the season, you, you feel for those guys, especially, I think, a senior class like this, where you have Eddie Stansbury, who, in my opinion, is going to go down as one of the great shooters in the history of University of Hawaii basketball. And while his reputation will always be associated with being a three-point sniper, he actually was a pretty damn good all-around basketball player by the time it was said and done. Uh, he was great on offense. He became a more versatile offensive player, certainly, in his senior campaign. And then he was a guy who wasn't scared to call the assignment to guard uh, either one of or the best offensive player on the opposing team. Not to mention you could count on him to play 40 minutes on any given night. The guy was, like, running three miles before practice. And, you know, his endurance was something that was almost superhuman, where he'd play – uh, 38, 39, 40, or if they go to overtime, even more than that minute game and like would barely be perspiring. Like it, it looked robotic at times. Uh, and so I think that's to me, one of the, the more regrettable parts of this is, you know, I feel for a guy like Eddie because he was, he was so good. He deserved along with Zigmars as well, a guy who just transformed his body, transformed his role and became, you know, the hustle player of the year in the conference those are guys that I think deserved a, a, a better opportunity than what was presented to them. But you could say that about so many senior classes across the board. Uh, but I know for me personally, and, and you know, you and I are, are, are very invested in this University of Hawaii basketball program uh, because of the way we cover it as media members. Uh, but th that's something that I'll, I'll kind of keep with me is ah, I wish I could have seen them just finish the job, whether it would have been in defeat or whether it could have been something a little more story than that. Sure. Uh, I hear you. Absolutely. And, and the women's side too, they, I know they had full feeling and confidence that they could roll to that big West championship after they uh, took care of Fulton in, in their first game pretty convincingly. So um, yeah, you, you do feel for them as well. And as you said, pretty much all the other um, athletics teams out there, even, you know, you go look at the HPU women who had such a, uh, a great season in their own right and were going to host a D2 regional and that got shut down. So uh, just really unfortunate. And when you look at it, who would you call upon if you wanted to teach somebody how to shoot a basketball, who would you call upon to give that first lesson, Julissa Tongo or Eddie Stansbury? Oh man, that's uh that's a pretty good question, isn't it? 
That's a good question. I, you know, I would, I would probably have to throw in Amy Atwell into that conversation. Sure. Sure. I was just more thinking of the seniors though. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I mean, you know, Eddie having pretty much set records in his own, or at least come really close, you know, in his own right, he has the single season, uh, Mark, uh, you know, Julissa also setting the single season three Mark. hard to argue that on either side. And Julissa just came on so strong late in her, her career. That is tough, tough to pick. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give Jay a shout out. I mean, it's, it's I'm with you. her name. It's just it's Jay. So, you know, maybe you have to listen to that person. That's right. That's right. If you, if you can, uh, if your name is Jay, if you're known as Jay and, and you can shoot the Jay, then uh, it's poetic. You're right. I, maybe this is hot takey, but uh, I think I would go with Julissa on that one, man. If you just see her set the feet, <laughs> the way she flicks the wrist, the rotation on the ball, uh, with all due respect to Eddie, who's one That's of the right. off-the-screen jump shooters uh, that Hawaii's ever seen or had. Um, yeah, I think I give Jay the, the nod there. Hot take right there here on the first hey. episode of Court Sense. That's what we deliver, at least uh, <laughs> this one time, maybe this only time. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> so it's been, what, now eight years for you for men's basketball? And I know the last few, right, for, for women's as well? There and about, yeah, yeah. Um, Pops was still working the Rainbow Wahine basketball games uh, for Spectrum uh, for uh, a number of seasons before he officially called it a career a couple of years ago. So um, I was fortunate enough to be asked to uh, include Rainbow Wahine basketball among uh, my assignments for Spectrum Sports. Uh, and so it's it's been a lot of fun. I mean, basketball is a sport that uh, I think if, if I were to say which sport I had the greatest affinity for as a youngster, as a wannabe participant, uh, it would be basketball. It would be hoops. That, that's the, the sport that I've uh, grown up playing the most and, and had the greatest amount of passion for uh, and have had really tremendous opportunities as far as my broadcasting career uh, to be associated with. So uh, I love me some hoops, man, as, uh, as you well know. But, yeah, I, I, it's, it's been a really cool, fun, awesome ride uh, and I, I accept it and I also treat it as a tremendous honor uh, to be the individual who is asked to carry that torch of being the play-by-play announcer for the various University of Hawaii sports uh, for which I serve uh, as the broadcaster. So uh, basketball is right up there for sure. What was that moment like? Do you remember when, when you got the word or got the nod that you could kind of inherit Pops, your your dad, uh, who was – he had a, like a 40 year run, right? A uh, four decade run calling UH games that you would be inheriting that UH basketball mantle from him. Yeah, there was a postseason game. Hawaii played USF in the CIT, the, uh, CIT. The, the second round of the CIT. That's right. That was in, that was 2010. Is that Gib, was Gib that, Arnold's that first right? season that UH played Portland, beat Portland at home and then hosted uh, USF in the second round of the CIT. Yeah. So um, that was actually the, one of the first opportunities I had uh, to call a uh, university of Hawaii basketball game. I was working with Laurie Santi and that particular, at that particular time uh, it was, K5 was still the dominating force and had the television contract for University of Hawaii television coverage. And, but, you know, Oceanic at the time was looking to try to maybe get in on the next go around. And so for the postseason games and telecast, those rights are pretty much open for bid. And so Oceanic came in and they secured the rights. And I had been calling games for OC 16 for a number of years. 
And so, uh, you know, they, they gave me the nod because Pops was basically working for the other entity. Uh, and so they, they wanted to put another uh, fresh broadcast team together for that one particular game. Uh, and I worked the game with Laurie Santi. And uh, that was maybe my first sort of foray into the television side of calling University of Hawaii basketball. And then, yeah, it was only a, a few years later when uh, Oceanic, now Spectrum, secured the rights uh, and eventually uh, called upon me to, uh, to take over as Pops uh, started to kind of scale some of his responsibility back. Right. You know, he was a guy, even after that, who still called some University of Hawaii games, I think baseball for a while after that, um, women's basketball. So what, what was it kind of like those concurrent years when, when you were calling some and he was calling some? Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty funny. It, it was pretty cool. I mean, Pops has always been open for feedback and advice, sometimes brutally so. Um, I think what's funnier, though, is because when we're calling the UH games, uh, we're not necessarily going to be working the same nights, right? Um, he'll be working something one night like Rainbow Wahine basketball on a Thursday, and then I would come in on Friday for the UH men's game. Uh, what I laugh about more is when I was still calling the high school games, for OC 16 and he was calling all the UH games uh, on the other side. And he, we, we would talk to each other and be like, Oh, I got, you know, uh, I got uh, Campbell versus Kapole uh, in football tonight. What do you have pops? And he's like, Oh, I got uh, rainbow Wahine volleyball against uh, BYU. Uh, and you know what? I'm going to kick your ass in the ratings. He would always say that. And it, it, that was kind of funny. Like we'd be on literally at the same time. Uh, I would be calling a high school event. He'd be calling UH and, um, he would just be bragging about how uh, he was, you know, bigger time. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it was, that was a lot of fun to kind of wrestle with and uh, joke around about. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, it's, what was funny was on some of the evenings where they would have a Rainbow Wahine basketball or University of Hawaii men's basketball doubleheader. And he would call the first game and then I'd come in and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd tell him, all right, B team out, A team coming in. And, you know, I'd sit down with Artie and, and he and Laurie Santi would get up and leave. And, and just, I don't know, we've, we've always had a real playful relationship and the ability to tease and joke around with one another. But uh, that said, I have the utmost respect, obviously, for Pops. He has uh, taught me pretty much everything that I know and uh, is the guy that I consider to be the best uh, ever by far uh, to do it in this market and do it in this place. Uh, and one of the best ever overall, I think. But um, but yeah, we, we've we've taken advantage of those opportunities to kind of joke around with each other. So his dad, your grandfather Chuck, I mean, he did radio broadcasts, right? Of of UH basketball, maybe among other sports, and uh, was kind of instrumental. And I know in formulating the the Rainbow Classic uh, back in his day. What was it like at you as a kid? Maybe if you were, if you can remember. Do you have a, a moment that you realize, hey, this is something like I want to do, I want to carry on even from like a pretty young age? You know, I never actually thought I would get into it, but I did have at a very young age an exposure to it. I would go with my dad to games. I would sit up in the booth with him while he was calling football or while he was calling baseball a couple of times. I made too much noise and he'd have to, you know, kind of give me a little uh, backhanded little apa to like tell me to keep quiet. And, um, but those were, I didn't even realize how much I was sort of just being exposed to the craft at the time. Uh, but I was, you know, I was like any other kid. I was into playing sports on my own and, um, you know, I was going to, to school and uh, just caught up with, with more kid stuff. And um, when it came time to start thinking realistically about, all right, what do you imagine yourself going into? I kind of had a 
uh, feeling that I would maybe be drawn to something like physical therapy. I had some knee injuries when I was younger. Uh, mm-hmm. They're thus not allowing me to play in the NBA. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it was over before it started, the NBA career. Um, but, you know, I just thought that maybe it was a sign that, you know, that was a field that I could possibly explore. Um, but now that I look back on it, you know, I would sleep over at friends' houses. We'd have like a group of dudes watching sports or playing video games like Madden on Sega Genesis. And um, they would have me, they would quiet the sound, like mute the TV and have me announce the action. Uh, it was just something that we did at, for fun. And I kind of could do it. And it was something that was kind of funny. The guys would get a kick out of it. So I did it. Uh, not ever thinking like, oh, I'm going to apply this to my career, but just something that I did for fun. Uh, and then early on, uh, when I was a senior in high school. At Iolani. <laughs> yeah, at Iolani. Uh, I had torn my ACL for the second time in as many years. The other ACL as opposed to my junior year. Uh, and Mike Vasconcelos, former Chaminade Athletics Director, uh, who we had known were actually kind of distant cousins with through marriage. Um, he called my dad one day, his daughter Kii uh, was playing for Punahou at the time. Um, and he was basically interested in broadcasting her games on radio. So he cut a deal with KGU to carry a package of ILH girls basketball games. And I think he thought, Hey, you know, it'd be a novel idea is to have like a younger person serve as the announcer. And I think that's code for a cheap person be announcing. And so he called my dad and and basically asked for permission to see if I'd be interested. I was a senior at Ilani at the time. And uh, and so my dad relayed the message to me. I talked to Mike Vasconcelos. And next thing you know, I was uh, announcing games as a senior in high school uh, on radio for girls uh, high school basketball with my man, Jaron Akana, was my color uh, partner. And in fact, you discovered a picture I uh, have it long ago and I sent it to Jaron and he was like, whoa, like that is a blast from the past. I think we were at, uh, I think we were at Punahou's gym calling a game at the time. And it was a picture of a very young and unattractive Kanoa Leahy and a uh, very young and still attractive Jaron Akana uh, with the headsets on calling the action. Uh, sometimes life isn't fair, I guess, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but those, you know, doing those games and, and sort of having that experience was invaluable because first off, you know, it, it wasn't a, a high quality production. Let's just put it that way. I was basically hooking up to phone lines as most radio announcers do. Uh, but in some cases, like for a playoff game between University High and Punahou, which was held at Damien uh, High School, at Damien's gym, uh, the phone lines courtside weren't working. They were dead. So I had to go up into the offices upstairs inside the gym and pull a desk phone out as far as I could and talk on the desk phone receiver while looking through the bars of the railing of that second level and calling the game there. On top of that, I had like a cold. So I was like covering the receiver of the phone and coughing and sneezing between plays and, and you know, during some of the dead times. And, uh, you know, those were like early lessons because – that was one of the first things that my dad told me was, hey, look, if you're going to try to do this, uh, just know, uh, you know, I'm not going to be like pulling strings for you. Like you have to pay your dues like everyone else in this business always had to do. And my grandfather, frankly, did the same thing uh, for my dad when he first started getting into it. It's not as though my grandfather was, uh, you know, pulling strings in, in the background to try to get him some sweet gigs. Uh, he made him earn it and made him pay dues and, and do whatever small productions were available because that's part of the learning curve and learning process. So 
Uh, I look back very fondly on those times, uh, even if they weren't uh, the most glamorous uh, in my sports casting career. So before that sports casting career would become kind of your full-time profession, you went into news first, right? Um, and you, mm-hmm. you were a, um, a newscaster on the, on sportscast, KITV and KHON um, for a good eight, eight to 10 years uh, length of time, something like that. Uh, yeah. Well, so after, so doing some high school sports for a few years, I stayed at UH while I was rehabbing my knee, kind of hoping that uh, I could like play hoops at some division eight school somewhere eventually. Uh, but I was doing radio announcing on the side and started calling Hawaii Pacific university games uh, while I was going to UH. And then HPU offered me a scholarship. Uh, Chat Wright was the president at the time. And it was kind of this uh, new, newfangled idea that he came up with. Like, uh, how about we give you an athletic scholarship and you can be the voice of HPU on radio? Um, and that was another ex- incredible experience. And I got to get a lot of really high quality reps in there and calling Tony Salito basketball games and Alan Sato baseball games and uh, hanging with Neil Everett, who was at the time a uh, sportscaster for KGMB, but was also working on the side as the assistant athletics director of compliance at HPU. So it's like, you know, I mean, it, it was just a crazy time when you think about it. Uh, but uh, yeah, after doing that for a few years, uh, I got a call from Robert Kikaula and I was 21 years old and I was uh, in a class at HPU. My phone or rang, wait, was it my phone or my pager? I'm not sure if it was my pager and I had to call him or if I got a call. Anyway, I got a message from Robert and I got, uh, I got back to him and he said, Hey, do you want to uh, give it a try for uh, a reporting gig uh, at KITV? So I applied, I did a read, I got it. Uh, and at that time there were three sports guys in each department, which is absolutely unheard of. Unheard, unheard of now. Um, but it was Robert Kikawa, Dan Meisenzall and me. Uh, and so I'd spent five years at KITV, eventually uh, moving up to weekend anchor uh, and then Rick Langiardi hired me at KHON to be the sports director, and I was there for nine years. So about 14 total years in the TV news side. Uh, and, you know, that was, that's a whole different can of worms compared to doing play-by-play announcing. I mean, that is, as you know, uh, covering sports and dealing with deadlines, daily, nightly deadlines, and uh, having to work with a clean slate every single day. It doesn't matter how great your sports cast was last night or how fantastic that story that you produced was last night because tomorrow's a new day and we got nothing. You got to work it from scratch. And uh, that kind of repetition, monotony, dare we say, at times can kind of get to you. It doesn't have the same sort of unscripted freshness that doing play-by-play does. Uh, but same thing, you know, I mean, it was part of a, a learning experience and I got to work with some really, really talented, tremendous and intelligent and, and, and bright people. Uh, and, and yeah, it just, um, that was a huge chapter of my life. Do you miss that time at all? I do to a degree. I, I miss some of the, maybe the stability of it. Um, again, there's a thin line between stable and monotonous. And I think, you know, just having something every day that you know is going to challenge you, that you know you have to get, you know, taken care of, um, that was probably good for me. I'm a bit of a procrastinator by nature. So having that daily deadline uh, was really something that motivated me to get out of bed. Otherwise, I may not have. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I do miss some of that. And, and I think just mainly the people that I worked with. I worked along with, you know, Rob DeMello, uh, sat next to Joe Moore. Um, you know, Sam Spangler, some of these, John Venary, some of these other guys that uh, I really, you know, had a pretty uh, intimate working relationship with. And, and, you know, you're in the, as you know, with some of your 
colleagues at the newspaper, uh, you're in the trenches with these guys, you know, sure. and you're, you're, you're battling on a daily basis. And so uh, you get to be pretty close. And sometimes the stress uh, is overwhelming and you find yourself bickering and you're, you know, you're, you're snapping at other people in the newsroom, uh, but that's just kind of part of the culture there. So there's some of those parts of it that I miss. Uh, but I, I definitely think that play-by-play announcing is something that carries a much greater amount of romance to it. Uh, it's unscripted. Uh, it's live. It's, you know, you're, you're right there courtside, best seats in the house as the cliche goes. Uh, and so that's something that you can't duplicate, I think, uh, in any other realm of the sports broadcasting industry. And on that note, that's a great segue. And I don't think I even planned that, but here, I'm gonna, just going to run with it. What are your favorite moments, you know, of your time? We'll, we'll limit it to UH basketball specifically okay. for the purposes of this podcast. Over these eight years, you've got to do first on Oceanic and then Spectrum, the rebrand of Oceanic. Uh, any game or moment or calls, you know, what have been your kind of your favorite that when you look back on or think back on or have rewatched really stand out to you? Yeah, I, you know, I don't rewatch a ton of the games that I call, uh, even though they are shown incessantly on Spectrum Sports, right? They like put it on repeat for months and months. Uh, but uh, there were some moments that definitely stood out to me. And um, some of them were with Spectrum. Some of them were with ESPN. Um, one of those games in particular was when Hawaii defeated Xavier as part of the one of the very first Hawaiian Airlines Diamond Head yeah. Classic tournaments, uh, which is now, you know, that's, that's old hat. That, that tournament's been around for a while, but it, there was a time where it was brand spanking new and it was kind of considered a bit of an experiment. But they brought Xavier down, uh, who was, you know, a nationally ranked team that season. And, you know, they had some really great players uh, on that squad to Holloway. Uh, was one of their standout backcourt members. Uh, and their game with Hawaii went down to the wire. It was Hans Brereton hitting like a double clutch three uh, to, uh, to keep Hawaii in it late. And then Justin Thomas uh, hit like a late put back. Uh, to, From the baseline, to, right? It was, yeah, it was kind of a muscle shot in traffic. Uh, it kind of trickled on the rim and hung there tantalizingly before going in. Uh, and those were two huge shots. And Hawaii ended up pulling off what was arguably uh, one of the top two, three, maybe even the top signature win for Gib Arnold uh, in his time at, uh, at UH. So that's one that certainly stands out. There have been a lot of really uh, fun last-second calls. Um, you know, we had one this past season, even with uh, Eddie Stansbury against UC Davis uh, hitting that classic three from the corner. Um, Hundredth year a buzzer anniversary. Beater. That's right. And it wasn't a buzzer beater, but it came on the night where they were celebrating 100 years of rainbow basketball and you had all these legends in the house. Uh, and so that couldn't have been more perfect. Uh, those would probably be the two that first come to mind when I think about, uh, when I think about some of the great UH basketball moments. And I, I'm going to say that I don't think there's any recency bias to that Eddie shot to no. beat Davis in the hundredth year thing. I mean, that it was that, you know, the way they drew up that play coming out of the, you know, they had to, they had taken a foul to get themselves in that situation just to have a chance to win, which you normally, you, you just don't see it work out for teams a whole heck of a lot, right? And for them to just run that play to a T and, and you just let you do your thing, well, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, you know, it was one of those where you could kind of see it coming, strangely. Like, it was a fantastically drawn up play. 
where Eddie was sort of assigned to be, uh, to at, le at least initially kind of play possum and maybe try to sell himself as being the decoy. So if you watch the replay, uh, he basically stands up straight and almost kind of casually uh, tilts his head to the side as if it's like, all right, this isn't for me. Uh, and then goes into full sprint. He becomes the second guy to loop around that double screen. Mm -hmm. And what was funny was the timing of it. I kind of saw Eddie come around the corner, uh, you know, or like by the elbow where he was headed towards the actual corner of the floor. And so I think the way I called it, uh, and I don't know if this is verbatim, but it was something along the lines of, oh, here comes Eddie <laughs> off the screen. And then he got the pass and he was like for three and, uh, and nailed it. And, you know, that's one of those situations, at least from a broadcaster's perspective, and this is kind of getting into the, you know, inside baseball of it. And I don't want to be too self-aggrandizing, but, um, you know, those are some of the moments where, you know, I've learned over time, if it's that special, you know, you don't have to be the announcer that has the super classic Kirk Gibson running around the bases line like Vin Scully in a year uh, that's so improbable, the impossible has happened. Uh, if you have one of those, that's great. But in a moment like that, I think oftentimes you can let the moment even speak for itself. So after I saw Eddie hit that shot, um, I looked at Artie Wilson and I just said, let's just, let's just keep it quiet. I kind of made the hand gesture of just like, let's just keep it down. And we let the crowd talk for a good number of moments. That wasn't a buzzer beater. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some time left. And so uh, it wasn't as though, you know, we were just walking off into the sunset, uh, but it was still a moment where you could just kind of let the crowd and the atmosphere uh, do the talking. And there have been some other moments in that Stan Sheriff Center with regard to some other sports uh, that have also called for that. Uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, that, that I'm proud of. I, 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 those are moments that are cherished when uh, the crowd and the atmosphere and the energy is so good um, that trying to add something to it as far as a, a, a verbal soundtrack um, almost does it an injustice in, in some cases. Yeah, I hear you. And, There've been others like, um, you know, shoot, UH came back from what, 17 down against Northridge this year to, to win a thriller. A couple of years ago, Leland Green hit, hit one against Northridge again from the corner. Noah Allen had an end-to-end layup to send that game to overtime where UH won it and scored like 120 points, something like that. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's been, in, even in the Big West uh, conference games, there's, there's been a handful like that. But the two you, you mentioned, the Xavier game and the Diamond Head, which was a nationally televised game, ESPN game, and then one like a local game like um, on Spectrum Sports. Well, what are some of the things you have to keep in mind as a broadcaster when you got a national TV game like that, a national audience, versus what would be a heavily skewed to UH audience for a local Yeah. Game? You know, it's funny because that game was one of my first true tests of that. I mean, my first ESPN gigs were with the Diamond Head Classic games. And so that was pretty early on in my foray into calling games on national television. And that was one of those where it was like, hey, it's, it's Hawaii. This is the home team. And they're going up against Xavier, uh, who was, what, number 14 at 14. the time? And, you know, they're going up against this team that's going to draw you know, a, a pretty – big viewing audience uh and then those kinds of heroics down the stretch with Brereton down the end of, of regulation and Justin Thomas with the the game winner basically in the last second um mm -hmm. you have to present it as though you are a neutral party when you are doing a game for a national audience uh, if you are calling it for spectrum and it's going to be primarily like the vast majority of viewers are going to be Hawaii fans uh, I'm not necessarily in the business of being 
overly biased, uh, but I think you definitely lean with the home team. You don't necessarily say, you know, like we're down, we need a big bucket. You don't you necessarily personalize it to that degree. Uh, but you know, there's definitely a way you can translate. All right, you know, we're going to be fair here in the broadcast, but we're we're the Hawaii broadcast team, and we're going to get a little more razzed up when it's a Hawaii big play versus the opposing team. But that was one of those games that, that tested that uh, early on for me. And uh, I think what was you know great about it was it was just such a good game. Uh, I think Tu Holloway, who we mentioned earlier, had like 26 or something in that game. And uh, Gabe Arnold high-fived him during the game, if I'm rem- remembering correctly. I think you're right. I think you're right. And, um, and so, you know, it was just a good overall game. So uh, I, I could not have been – like no one could begrudge me for being excited about the outcome – Either way, it would have gone. Uh, so, but it, it was that was one of the first times where it was very prevalent in my mind. Like, hey, you know, make sure you're aware of what you're doing here, and you don't give anybody a reason to accuse you of being overly biased or uh, you know too much of a homer in favor of of the University of Hawaii. How, how are the nerves in that situation? Just as the game's playing out, uh, you're talking about if you were on like a nationally televised right. game. Uh, right. Yeah, early on, it was it was pretty nerve wracking. Um, there's just a, a much greater extent of research that you have to do uh, when you're calling one of those games uh, as opposed to when you're calling a game for the you know, Hawaii broadcast uh, organization, in this case, Spectrum Sports. Uh, not that the work is any easier or not that I can you know, mail it in to any degree uh, when I'm working just a, a Hawaii televised broadcast, uh, but you know, ESPN tends to provide opportunities, whether it be through some of the graphics that are produced ahead of time or, you know, when you're throwing it back to studio and all that stuff, uh, it opens up opportunities to try to establish dialogue about like the big picture of college basketball, which you're not necessarily forced into doing as much when it's a spectrum broadcast. Uh, And so you got to be prepared in that way. You got to be prepared for like on a whim, if somebody from the SEC or like for Auburn or Kentucky or someone from another conference, you know, goes for 60 that night uh, elsewhere. And then that's part of the update that precedes your coming back from a commercial break or something like that. You got to kind of be prepared to add to that and not just be like, Whoa, Kentucky, (laughs) we're blue and white. Like you got to kind of have a little bit more for it just in case. And so uh, the level of research is a little bit more intense and, uh, and I think that added to the nerves of like, all right, have I done enough studying for this game? Have I, have I put in the, the, the necessary time uh, and research here to appropriately get this job done? Uh, one of the coolest moments, though, was that first game that I did, that first year of the Diamond Head Classic. And they had only assigned me to three games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was working with uh, Doug Gottlieb and Jay Williams. And, uh, and I just remember that that first moment when you hear the ESPN college basketball music, right? That, dun, 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 you know, it's just that, that was when I was like, Oh, okay. This is pretty cool. Like this is, this is going to be fun. And uh, hopefully I don't bleep it up too much, uh, which yeah. is the same feeling I have years later now uh, in the debut episode of Brian McInnes's court sense. <laughs> yeah. Podcast. This thing is just going down in flames. <laughs> it's never going to see the light of day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and this is cutting room floor stuff all right here. <laughs> Oh man, no. Well, thank you for sharing that. That that's actually pretty cool. And you know, it's 
I don't think it's quite analogous to like a, a newspaper beat reporter, for example, but on some level you do feel at least when it's kind of a marquee game, you know, your audience may be the same. Maybe you'll get some more readership from outside your typical circulation, but when it's a big game, you do kind of get the sense that you have to rise to the moment a little bit. Um, and I'm sure it's, it's much like that for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, uh, it should not be understated that that's still the goal, whichever game I work. Um, and if it's a spectrum sports broadcast, it's not as though I'm going to treat it any less mm -hmm. important. Uh, it's still something that I bring uh, all of my uh, pride and effort and energy to. Um, it's just a little different. Like the dynamic is different. The approach is slightly different. Uh, but the, the emotion, the investment uh, is very much the same. And, um, you know, I think, you know, in some cases when it is a Hawaii broadcast, um, like the game against UC Davis, which had all of that history attached to it because it was the night they were celebrating the 100 years of rainbow basketball. Um, you know, you, you, I felt it. I felt it that night. Like, Hey, look, we, we got to do a good job in, in trying to uh, assist in telling this story because this is a big night and it's an important night. It's a night that could potentially be talked about for a long time. And worth mentioning is uh, Pops was sitting right down the row on press row that night. Correct. And yeah. uh, was totally in his element. Like, seemed like he had not just missed a beat, missed a step from the last time he was there, soaking it in. Yeah. Uh, offering quips and jabs to whoever may have passed by, including myself. You know, I talked to him at halftime uh, because he was in the house and we were sort of doing that. We were sitting down with some people periodically, whether it be the crew in the corner or uh, courtside with Artie and I. Um, but we had pops uh, on at halftime. And so I had a chance to just talk story with him. And um, he was really excited to be there. There were so many people that were just happy to see him. It's like the number one question I get uh, when I go to the arena on any given night is, hey, where's your dad? When's he coming? It's like, oh, hi, good to see you too. When am I chopped liver? But I can totally understand it because, I mean, geez, man, it's Pops and he's, he's a legend. And um, it was fun to have him on the air and, and talk with him. And the very first thing he said, I said, what do you think about this? Because at that moment, all of the former players and coaches who were in the house were being introduced very generally by the way but introduced on the stand share of center floor and they were all lined up and it was just a classic shot so we're sort of showing that while we're coming back for a commercial break and i'm talking uh, or at least setting up the interview with with my dad and uh, i said you know what do you think about this you know all of these legends who are gathered in the same place here on this very special night um you know what do you think about that that scene he goes they look old <laughs> he goes they've aged and it's just the classic pops quip where it's like, it's very, you know, it's the, the minimal amount of syllables to get the largest amount of reaction where he's like, they've aged and I couldn't help myself, but uh, just start cracking up right there. And uh, it's, you know, he always seems to have that appropriate perspective on what's going on. And it was all in good fun, but they did age. Like all these guys are older. And it's so interesting to sort of see that, that transition from, back in their playing days and, you know, wearing in some cases the little tight shorts and University of Hawaii uniforms. Uh, and here they are now on the floor as older men, many uh, who have had their own families, whose children have had their own families, uh, but still taking part in this, in this long uh, storied celebration. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, <laughs> I left that interview after going back and forth with them a few times and sort of getting some of the perspective on, on the story of UH basketball from him. 
Uh, and then I said, uh, all right, well, thanks once again to a uh, longtime sportscaster and member of the University of Hawaii Circle of Honor, Jim Leahy. And uh, he goes, yeah, my plaque is, in fact, right over there above section. I was like, yeah, I know you know exactly where your plaque is uh, in the arena. And it was just another kind of uh, funny way to, to end that back and forth. He's, uh, he's a good dude, man. Uh, I love that guy. Yeah, that's awesome. And when I was just starting at the paper, he uh, I think he kind of went out of his way to really offer me some pointers and, and just kind of uh, be a, just somebody I could uh, bounce an idea or, or a thought off of and always very supportive of, of, you know, my work and what I did uh, and offering, uh, you know, just some feedback here or there. So I was always very appreciative of that. And, and then you guys, when you had your uh, show on PBS, Leahy and Leahy, you know, you guys would have me on every so often. So I'm just when I was this, you know, guy trying to get his name out there a little bit, uh, you know, just out of college a year or two, so I really appreciate that, you know, what you guys did bringing me on there just to kind of get <laughs> this fresh faced, uh, ginger kid out there and, uh, let him say his mind once or twice. So that was awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you're a special guy, man. You're a good friend and one of the few Kailua high school graduates who doesn't uh, perform in <laughs> MMA. And so, you know, I think that's, uh, that's something that we can, uh, we can both bond over is that, uh, you're not in jujitsu. I'm not in jujitsu. Uh, and maybe that's rare in our society today. Well, here's to the little things. <laughs> um, and I look at wanna, you now. Look at yeah, you now with this I podcast. Uh, I do want to get out the uh, yellow highlighter for, for one thing I said earlier on the pod. Look at me. I'm already editing myself here. Okay. Uh, Eddie Stansbury, I believe I said he was the, the broke the record for single season threes. He actually finished at number three for a season with 90. Uh, I believe Zane Johnson still holds the the single season think, mark. Yeah, and then Jack Purchase is the career. He's the career on the men's. Eddie did set the single season attempts threes mm -hmm. record this season, so that's the mm -hmm. one he broke. Yeah, but he, yeah. he's like in the top three, three or four now, I think, in career threes made and just having played two years here. So salute to him again for that. I like like to thank everybody for uh, for tuning in for this inaugural edition of Court Sense the podcast, and special thanks to Kanoa Leahy for. Uh, making a little time to, to come on and uh, share some thoughts for his play-by-play -play outstanding career in the making for UH basketball <laughs> well, and other sports. You know, it's an honor to be on the, the first episode of the podcast, uh, Court Sense, which has maybe the greatest podcast logo that's ever been uh, put together and that has ever been designed. Um, but, uh, you know, I, hopefully we have a chance to add to the basketball memories here this year. There's so much up in the air. Uh, but UH has a pretty intriguing recruiting class and uh, would be uh, awesome if uh, we are given the opportunity to, uh, in normal time and in normal circumstances, uh, be able to celebrate more UH basketball memories. Uh, but I know you'll have an opportunity to take us through uh, all of that nostalgia here on this podcast uh, if it's not canceled immediately after this show. Chances are it will be, but we'll just make do while it lasts. Thanks a lot, Kanoa. <laughs> you got it, man. I'd like to extend a special thank you to my sister, Megan McInnes, for designing the cover art for the Court Sense podcast. I thought she did a great job, as Kanoa said as well. If you'd like to commission her for some artwork or projects, she can be found at 11zs.com. That's E-L-E-V-E-N-Z-I-E-S.com. All right, take care all, and thanks for listening.